following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Welcome, everybody. We've arrived at the 17th lecture, the final one in this course, on the Sufi principles of meditation. We've covered many exercises, many practices, so that we train and stabilize our consciousness. We've learned to withdraw our perception from distractions. And we've also learned how to awaken the consciousness so that it it can perceive without filters, without obscurations, so that it can understand what it sees. And while we've spoken about spiritual insight and comprehending our experiences, we are now going to go a little bit deeper. We have to understand what consciousness is. Where does it come from? What is its ultimate root? What is the synthesis of a human being? In our studies, we speak a lot about the being, our innermost. Some have called it spirit. Some have called it God. In accordance with the language the culture, the scriptures, the customs of a given people, the idiosyncrasies of a given messenger. But what is the being? What are its qualities? How do we recognize its states? And more importantly, how do we subsist within it? Many people have approached spirituality 
from having some type of mystical or spiritual experience. They call it an awakening. But the reality is that such a state has often appeared or emerged seemingly by accident. And the practitioner or the beginning aspirant does not yet know how to activate that quality of being at will. God, divinity, reality, we can say is our primordial root fundamental nature. But what is and what are the qualities of divinity? Sufism explains this very beautifully. Perhaps the poet Rumi, the most notable Sufi initiate from both East and West in terms of popularity, had characterized the nature of divinity very simply and very profoundly. That nature is love. That quality is bliss, is ecstasy, is conscious love and compassion, infinite joy. Some people argue that the real nature of a person is anger, Pride, hatred, vanity, lust. But this is mistaken. When you really sift through and remove that which is extemporaneous, superficial, artificial, acquired, learned within a person, when you peel away the layers of conditioning, of misapprehensions, of half-truths, of assumptions and beliefs, ideas, religious values, culture, name, language, heritage, etc., you arrive at love. Love is truly a principle that escapes definition and even words. And yet it is the fundamental impulse that permeates everything and which drives our actions, spiritually speaking, within its most obscure, mysterious currents. As I said, some people think our true nature is hatred or anger, violence, because these are qualities that are very prevalent in humanity. And yet, the question becomes, what do we value most? Is it coercion? Is it manipulation? Deceiving our neighbor? Lying to our family and friends? Betraying our loved ones? The truth is that although a person could torture us, 
afflict us with great pain. They can't compel us within our very being. There is a resistance in relation to qualities and states like pride and anger, violence, oppression. Persuasion from conscious love for others is a truly dynamic force. It motivates people to be inspired, to change, to be a part of communities, to want to listen to others. Whereas its opposite, which is coercion, a type of violence upon the mind and body of others, produces a type of agitation, friction, conflict. Therefore, love is a truly penetrative and motivating force. It is the reason why there are communities, there are groups, schools, teachings. It is the reason why human beings commune and share and break bread. It is the reason why we have these teachings for how to change, how to overcome suffering, and how to become truly divine, to really strip away all that is wrong and illusory and false and superficial so that we can go into the depths of our own innate true nature. So, love is the fundamental reality of divinity. And yet, people do not understand what it is, and more importantly, how to develop it even further with intentionality, with conscientiousness, with dedication. So this quality of being, we have to make a very clear distinction, does not have a individual self. There is no I, no me, no myself within the being, within the divine. And this confuses people because we grasp at a sense of self, an identity, in accordance with our external customs our name, language, culture, appearance. We say, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I am. And yet none of that exists within divinity. What we have are desires, cravings and attachments, impulses, nafs, according to the Sufi initiates, egos, according to the Gnostic, Initiate Samael on Vior. Our desires are precisely that which keep us encaged, trapped, not seeing reality, not seeing what is there in front of us. 
If you've been following the sequence of exercises in this course, you will have begun to see from direct experience that the more you observe as a consciousness, your psychology, the more you begin to understand that the consciousness, the essence, the soul does not have a sense of I or self there, but it is a distinct quality. It is perception, apprehension of reality, but without labels, without any type of projection or naming of what is being seen, what is experienced with our psychological senses. It is a state of selflessness. And when there is no self, when there's only the consciousness present, the being can act within. It is those moments of pristine clarity in which we are not identified with a self, in which we are filled with the abundance, the plenitude of the being, of presence, of being here and now. Not projecting our thoughts into the future or fearing the past, but simply being here and awake, alert. As if we're watching a rain pouring upon a cobblestone street in which we don't have to label what we are seeing, but are filled with that yearning and astonishment of the new. That state is selfless. And where there is no self, there is the plenitude of God. The being is love. But the being has no desire or self. Oftentimes, people read the poetry of the Sufis and can be confused by this because the Sufis speak of God's desire for the soul. And the soul's desire for God. In the Arabic you have Murad, the desired, which is the being, or Allah. While Murid, the one who desires, is the consciousness. The soul desires God, and God desires the soul. We're a little bit more specific in our language in that this desire the Sufis speak of is yearning, longing, aspiration, intimate inquietudes within the heart. So we use the term a little bit differently as desire is an ego because that's typically what constitutes our psychology. An attached sense of self or identification with external factors. Heaven is a state of being. It is a quality of consciousness in which there is no I, in which we are empty. There's a saying within Gnosis that God searches the nothingness in order to fill it. It's from the Aquarian message by Samuel and Vior. But likewise, when our mind is filled and conditioned with multiple conflicting factors, divisions, contradictions, fragmentations, we suffer, and God cannot enter there. Divinity cannot subsist or be within us 
when our consciousness is shattered. And in this way, we cut ourselves on the broken mirror of our soul. And we don't reflect a perfect image of the peace and serenity and beatitude of the divine. Hell is our own mind. It is our own defects, our nafs, our psychological aggregates. And so long as we are attached to a sense of self, we are not perceiving heaven. There's a saying by Abu Sa'id, wherever the delusion of your selfhood appears, there's hell. Wherever you aren't, that's heaven. The ego must not be present. We must be absent to the self so that we can experience divinity, which is selflessness, which is pure love. If you don't believe me that love is selfless, look at the life of Jesus. Look at the prophets, the great masters and luminaries of humanity who taught through their example how to serve others, to not expect a reward. We state that love is the goal of our studies. However, it cannot blossom in us naturally, spontaneously, unsolicited when our heart is not cultivated, when it is filled with weeds. Therefore, we have to simplify our psychology. We have to become simple. Doesn't mean we become stupid. It means that we remove the complexities and the confusions and the paradoxes of our nature, our egotistical, selfish nature. Because right now our mind is really complex. If you sit to meditate and you examine yourself, you see the mind is all over the place. Hopefully it's not by now if you've been practicing these exercises. But when you meditate, you begin to perceive this in the beginning. And meditation reduces. It strips away. It removes everything about us that is illusory unnecessary as Rumi taught your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it so the soul has been referred to as a mirror by many Sufi initiates including Ibn Arabi who is Al-Shaikh Al-Akbar considered the greatest of Sufi teachers Sufi masters he wrote on a book called Kitab al-Khadiyah, Treaties on the One Alone, that only divinity can know himself and that the soul is a mirror. It can reflect a perfect image or it can be distorted. Unfortunately for us, our mirror, our consciousness, is polluted. It's contaminated. It's rusted with afflictions. We don't see what is really inside our true nature, which is divine. We don't perceive divinity because we have obscured 
have dirtied the mirror that can truly reflect qualities like love in an unfiltered, unobstructed, and unhindered way. Because we grasp at a self, we don't see reality. We don't see the truth. Our sense of self is dependent upon many extemporaneous influences, the impressions of life which enter our psychology, such as for a cup of coffee, and therefore our defects emerge, they seek gratification to the senses through those impressions, such as for any type of food or drink, we may have gluttony. Or the food of lust, which is to look at sexual images and feed desire. Degeneration. We have the food of pride, which is the sensations or impressions of being praised. We have anger, which is frustrated desire, which is an aversion towards the impressions of life that it cannot control, and therefore it protests. The same dynamic applies to all of our egos. Our sense of self craves its nourishment, its food, the impressions of life, which enter the senses in our psychology and produce reactions. And because we are identified, we don't perceive this interchange or exchange of different selves. We're never the same in, this, in a given moment. We are conflicted. We're all over the place, as we've mentioned many times in this course. Therefore, we have to annihilate the complications. We have to simplify ourselves, integrate the soul that is trapped, free it, liberate it. Stop feeding defects. Stop giving it food. And in this way, you tame the beast. Annihilation of the ego is the foundation and basis of religion. However, everybody avoids it. Nobody wants to polish the mirror to look at their own face. Which is why Rumi taught, how can you become polished if you resist every rub? And these are the difficulties and circumstances of life, ordeals, situations that produce a lot of friction in our life, in which we begin to perceive all the multiplicity of errors we carry within all of our faults and we need those challenges so that we can change so that we can have real knowledge gnosis or arabic marifa of the truth you can't give testimony of divine unity when you do not possess psychological unity without integrating the soul without performing an alchemy of the consciousness so we have to take all of those conditioned selves and remove them. Free the essence that's trapped, the soul. Take those multiplicity of desires and make them one. In the words of Rumi, I once had a thousand desires, but in my one desire to know you, all else melted away. This is transmutation in a psychological sense. It is a form of alchemy. We transform the light of our conditioning into the purity of divine perception. 
And so in this lecture, we're going to talk about really a central point. That to know divinity, we need expedient methods. We also need to understand selflessness, the emptiness of phenomena, that nothing is really intrinsically existing in and of itself, but everything depends on other factors, and therefore everything's in transience, is in transit, it's changing. And as we begin to understand the interdependent nature of all phenomena, and understand our own attachments and desires, we begin to perceive that our sense of self really doesn't have true basis. And that divinity, the plenitude of the being, is compassion, is love, born from this understanding, this perception, this wisdom. We'll also study the tree of life, the Kabbalah very deeply, because it is a map of love, of consciousness, of being in order to tie these principles together so that we can subsist to return to our innermost divinity. So the tree of life is a map of the self from the most dense and conditioned below to the most subtle, pure, rarefied and beautified above. The higher you ascend this glyph, which is not a map of vertical space, but internal states, the more selfless and happy we become. The further we descend towards the shadow beneath the tree of life, beneath Malkut, the physical body, the physical world, the greater one's suffering and attachment to self. This is the tree of life within the book of Genesis, within the Abrahamic traditions. And beneath the tree of life, we find the hell realms, the inverted sephiroth or spheres of consciousness, which are trapped in conditions, egos, selves, nafs. The Quran refers to this as the tree of zakum, which in Arabia is an actual tree whose leaves are really bitter to taste. And therefore, it is a symbol of inferior states of consciousness, which are acquired and experienced by those who fail. So we can refer to these spheres as dimensions, as aspects of consciousness. These are also places in nature to which we gravitate based upon our level and quality of being. And so if you remember the lecture on stations in this course, we talked a lot about these spheres, these sephiroth. In Hebrew, the term sephiroth means emanation. These are states and qualities of being that emanate from the divine, from the absolute, Allah, which in Arabic is the nothing, the no, literally. It means the God, but if you look at the syllable La, in Arabic, it means no, negation. This is a term used for the abstract absolute space, 
which is the womb of cosmic potentiality and being that is not yet realized. It is selflessness. It is pure divine, super divine happiness. Without conditions, without self. And yet it is the true, legitimate, fundamental nature of reality. When you go at the very heart and core of any phenomenon, the absolute is known in Hebrew as Ein, Ein Sof, Ein Sof Or. The nothing, the limitless, and the limitless light. From that nothingness, that cosmic space emerges a profound and beautiful light, which is the Sephirah Keter in Hebrew. That Sephirah means crown. It is the supreme light of divinity that emerges from an abstract eternal seity, the space. That light is pure consciousness that has manifested within the material universe. Now, while I'm using some Hebrew terms, the Sufis and the Muslim initiates refer to different qualities of being, these different sephiroth, by Arabic names because Kabbalah, as a map in science, of being is within all religions it was mapped out within Judaism within mystical Jewish mysticism Jewish spirituality in a very deep way and we can use this tool and glyph to help us understand what all religions are talking about in their fundamental synthesis Now, that light of the divine has been known as Al-Haq, the truth, Keter, the crown, the supremacy of divinity, a profound, abstract, rarefied, pure being that is now in manifestation. But that light, because it wants to create, expresses in multiple ways. And therefore, that light emanates out and becomes chokmah, which is Hebrew for wisdom. In the Quran, there are many references to al-Rahman, the compassionate. Every surah of the Quran, except for surah 9, begins, Bismillah ir-Rahman ir-Rahim, the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. Chokmah is the wisdom, the penetrative insight of divine consciousness. It is very elevated. It is a perception in which one or one's experience is within all beings. And there isn't an individual self, but all beings are one within this state. But that light also wants to create something. And therefore it expresses as al kalik the Creator, which in Hebrew is Binah, intelligence. That force of intelligent expression that knows how to manifest the universes, to create them with understanding. 
Now these three principles, Keter, Chokmah, Bina, the crown, the wisdom, and the intelligence of God, constitute one light that expresses in three ways. Now, in terms of relating to the previous religions, such as Christianity, this glyph can refer to principles and forces known as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Islam, they reject the Trinity stated in the Quran. That's because the Christians had degenerated their tradition and have confused the Trinity as three people anthropomorphizing God. And that's impossible and wrong. Instead, these are three forces. Or better said, one force that expresses as three so that all the worlds and universes can be sustained and created, harmonized, equilibrated, manifested. So Al-Khalik, the creator, is the force of Bina. And there are many names of God in Arabic. But these names that we're using here in this glyph are some of the most obvious that can apply to the Tree of Life. Because each Sephira has a sacred name of divinity within Judaism, within mystical Kabbalah. But we can also apply the Arabic Kabbalah as well. The Arabic divine names. Because they represent the same principles. The same truths. So these three principles are very divine. And most people know nothing of them from experience. Instead, we're down below. We are in Malkut, the physical body. And as we've learned the practices of meditation, we've discovered what the lower four Sephiroth are, especially also the fifth from the bottom up. In meditation, we learn to take our physical body, Malkut, which is the kingdom that contains all the forces from above. We learn to relax that body, adopt a posture, relax, introspect. We learn to work with energy, yasad, the foundation of our spiritual discipline. So that through exercises like mantra, pranayama, prayer, runes, sacred rites for rejuvenation, sexual alchemy, we are learning to transform the subtle currents of our body for our spiritual development so that we can gain control over our heart, which is hod, Hebrew for splendor, the splendor of the compassion and heart. We likewise put our mind in a state of suspension and relaxation and calm, netzach, and by doing so we obtain victory. But the way that we do this is with willpower. Tifereth, the human consciousness, human willpower. Because our human will, the beauty of the soul, has to learn to control thoughts, feelings, sensations, and energy. By doing so, we begin to activate the consciousness with intuition, with wisdom, which is Geburah. In Hebrew, justice, the religion in 
conscientiousness of the soul. So that with dedication and practice, we can begin to experience our own inner spirit, chesed, mercy in Kabbalah. In Arabic, the name of God for chesed is ar-rahim, the merciful, our innermost spirit, ruach in Arabic, or ruach in Hebrew. Notice that the further you ascend up this graphic, in terms of conscious experience, we begin to become less selfish. Obviously below we are identified with our own mind, our emotions, our instincts, and our physicality. And with willpower, which is much more subtle, refined, directed with will, under the conscience, our divine soul, we can begin to access the spiritual realm, our spirituality, and even perhaps even much higher than that. So these are degradations and levels of nature. And the forces of divinity expressed within the Sephiroth. So we've included some of the Arabic names as well. The physical body is the most manifest aspect of who we are. Az-Zahir, the manifest, is a sacred name of Allah, divinity. In Hebrew, it is Adonai, Haaretz, Lord of the Earth, because our physical body must become sacred. We do so by learning to tame the sexual creative potency of Yasad. We do that through Al-Wadud, the loving, the lover. It's really interesting that in Arabic, the name Al-Wadud is spelled Wa, Dal, Wa. Dal, which in their equivalence in Hebrew is Vav Dalet, Vav Dalet. Two spine, two spinal columns from two dervishes, man and woman, male, female, Adam, Eve. Together they work by taming the creative energies within a marriage in order to establish their religion. To glorify divinity, al-Majid, within the heart. To conquer the mind through al-Kahar, the conqueror. In order to become an initiate, al-Malik, the king, within Tifereth. The fifth initiation of major mysteries. As we've explained on the lecture on stations. We have to, of course, follow our conscience, which is al-Hakam, the judge, Geburah. Another term for Geburah is Deen which means judgment and religion. Our real religion and spirituality is based on how we judge our own defects, our own errors, in balance with the mercy and blessings of divinity, our Rahim. So there are many names of God in Arabic, very deep. They apply in many ways to the tree of life. This is just one way of approaching it. It's really inexhaustible how profound these principles are. But in synthesis, this is the map. This is who we are in our full constitution, in our multidimensionality and being. So if you've noticed, from the absolute, the Ain, Ain Sof, Ain Sof 4, emerges the tree of life, the universe. 
which is manifested reality and which emerges from unmanifested potentiality, Allah, the nothing. And it's interesting that in Islam, it is against the tradition to try to anthropomorphize divinity. There are no statues that are promulgated within that tradition of divinity because you can't anthropomorphize space. You can't characterize it with a statue. In reality, Allah, the nothing, the nothingness, the true being, is only represented with an Arabic calligraphy, which is a very beautiful and rich tradition that developed within the Muslim faith as a result of this uh, distinction. But from that nothingness emerges light, and that light condenses within different Levels of matter, energy, perception, and consciousness. We are in Malkut, and we're learning how to enter states of meditation so that we can access reality, which is more accessible and real the further up this diagram you ascend. Again, not in vertical space, but in states and levels of being. There are more elevated states of being and there are inferior states of being based upon our actions. The Sufis refer to the experience of the divine, which is basically Gaburah, Hesed, Binah, Hukmah, Keter, and beyond, as witnessing, to witness the truth, to experience it, to know it. They call this contemplation, Mushahida. And while we are really on the outskirts of entering this knowledge, we are in Malkut listening to this lecture, hopefully with a calm body and a receptive heart and an open mind and our willpower and attention fully focused on what we are hearing so that we can comprehend with judgment, with real understanding, the reality of what is being taught and therefore to extract its spiritual nature. All of these phenomena are manifested. They are what can be experienced in this universe. But the heights of divine experience are not within this universe. They are beyond. Really at the heights of this tree, this top trinity or logoic triangle, Keter Chokmah Binah, the light of divine continuity and consciousness. So as we meditate, we begin to gain glimpses of these realms. We can have access to them when we physically go to sleep. The body is at rest and the soul travels within the internal world, which are these different sephiroth. And if we're working really seriously, we can access much higher states than we can normally perceive had we not practiced. These are the stations of the Sufi path, the degrees of development and initiation. So there's a couple of verses from the Sufis. Ibn Karbala'i stated something very interesting relating this uh, dynamic between manifested reality and ultimate reality. If you've studied Buddhism, you'll be familiar with how there is conventional and ultimate views. 
In the conventional sense, we know that we have a physical body, we have energy, we have emotions, we have mind. And in a more subtle degree, we have will to act. Now to experience the real nature of our inner spirit, our divine consciousness, requires that we abandon self, attachments, our terrestrial identity, this conventional sense of who I am, what I think, what I feel, my likes, my dislikes, my attachments, my cravings, my aversions, my ignorance, etc. Ultimate view is when there is no self obstructing it in which you perceive directly from an, from an unobstructed height in a spiritual sense. Which is why this Sufi stated the following. When the seeker realizes the station of contemplation, Mushahida, which is witnessing God's essence and comprehending and encompassing all phenomena, which is really how all of the Sephiroth emanate from that divine source. And as we experience the selfless nature of emptiness, the being, Allah, we perceive that divinity has knowledge of all things, perceives all things, experiences all. Does not your Lord suffice since he is witness over all things? From the Quran, Surah 41, verse 53. Therefore, this practitioner continually witnesses lights from the mundus invisibilis, from such a mystic's perspective, this world and the hereafter are, all, are one and the same. This can only be realized by a vision that is all heart and spirit, not a view bound by mere mud and mire. These Sephiroth can emerge within our consciousness and we can visit these different dimensions through perceptions, through experiences in meditation, the invisible world. The mundus invisibilis. And it's from that direct witnessing of higher states in which, as a mystic, we perceive that this world and the hereafter are one and the same. In truth, Malkut, the physical body, the kingdom, the physical world, is merely the result and the expression of internal principles and actions. Our physical body ob obeys its energies, Yasad, how we react with our emotions and how we think. However, we're clouded by these lower Sephiroth, these lower spheres of being. And in truth, we have to clarify our vision, our perception. So that we perceive with the spirit, our Rahman, which is omniscient, objective, real, and heart, which we can say in this sense is Al-Hakam, the judge, our divine soul, and not by mud, admire, egotism, selfishness, attachments. Reality is experienced when the mind is receptive and the consciousness is active, not the other way around. What does it mean to worship divinity? What does this worship involve? From an esoteric, Gnostic, Sufi perspective. There is a saying in the Quran, Al-Nisa,
verse 36. Worship God and ascribe not partners unto Him. Unfortunately, in our times, we have a lot of theories, a lot of terminology, a lot of labels for spiritual states in accordance with different theological structures and theories, ideas, and assumptions. We have many beliefs about religion. We have many ideas about spirit. And the truth is that if you ask many people what spirit is, what God is, they all have different definitions. And therefore that indicates that they're wrong. Because they're not agreeing on reality. They all have different opinions of what reality is. It's because they don't see it. They don't experience it. They don't know it. Instead, what we have are traditions, lineages based upon ascription, ascribing ideas onto divinity. We can think what we want. We can believe what we want. We can theorize and assume and worship in accordance with our concepts and ideas and convictions. We can ascribe to divinity many of our own ideas and, again, assumptions. But in truth, it must be experienced. This is the demarcation between Gnosticism and many exoteric traditions. The Sufis and the Muslims have a very interesting term for this dynamic of projecting concepts onto divinity, ascribing partners onto divinity, holding equal certain things with divinity. And that has to do with projecting our ideas. They call it shirk. They call it idolatry. They call it polytheism, worshiping many gods. But how is this so? When we value our concepts over reality, we are idolatrous. We are mistaking our desires and assumptions for what is actually there. We're not experiencing what is there. We can say that any concept and belief we ascribe to with our conviction and heart, which is not based in direct perception of the truth, constitutes shirk, polytheism. So what is genuine worship? It means to practice without a self, without an identity, without labeling, but allowing the mind and heart to be in a tranquil state so that we can perceive clearly the tree of life, divinity. Tranquility allows us to have inner exploration of our psychological and spiritual unity. It might seem odd that we're relating conceptual beliefs and ideas with shirk, with polytheism, idolatry. It's because we have many ideas that are all over the place, conflicting, paradoxical, unsubstantiated. We have many multiple ideas and assumptions, but are they really rooted in facts? If it's a fact of life and experience, 
We don't have to have any beliefs about it. We know. So we need to integrate the consciousness. We do so through a state of tranquility, serenity, repose. There's a couple of statements from Al-Kushari, from the Principles of Sufism, which relate what is necessary in order to really worship divinity, to have knowledge or gnosis in Greek, marifa in Arabic, of one's inner Lord, one's inner divinity, which requires that we abandon our ideas, our most cherished convictions, and theories. Al-Kushari states the following, In general, it is to the measure of one's alienation from one's own ego that one attains direct knowledge of one's Lord. I heard Abu Ali al-Dakak say, one of the tokens of the Gnosis of God is the achievement of deep awe and reverence for God. If someone's realization increases, his awe increases. And I heard him say, Gnosis requires stillness of heart, just as learning requires outward quiet. If someone's Gnosis increases, his tranquility increases. We have to be alienated from the ego to really treat our defects, our pride, our vanity, our hatred as our worst enemy, to let it go, to not invest so much energy into this self. Because once you abandon the self, you really perceive the majesty of the being and have reverence and deep awe and respect for your inner God. Because you know divinity is always present with you. As stated many times in the Quran, we are closer to you than your jugular vein is one such example. The more we realize divinity, the more respect and awe and joy, inspiration, happiness we experience, it increases. But this is based upon meditative practice, requiring stillness of heart in the same manner that learning requires outward quiet. And the more realization one acquires, the greater peace and certainty one has. But this is based upon an understanding of love and will. In synthesis, the Sufis taught about alchemy, Allah Kimia, from the Arabic and the Greek, which means to fuse or cast a metal, Kimia, with Allah, to fuse oneself with divinity. We do so by making a profound distinction between love and, des and desire. In synthesis, we can say, selfish actions produce sorrow, whereas selfless actions produce happiness because they emerge from love, which is not concerned with oneself, but only the other. Conscious will is the soul's capacity to focus attention upon an object and to perform deeds of love, compassion for others even for one's enemy. Salman Vior referred to this as Christ's will. He even wrote a book with that title. Which is the perfect, the heavenly expression of superior action. To really sacrifice oneself for others. To respond selflessly to any situation. 
not for our own benefit, but for the blessings of others, the benediction, the sacrifice for others. In synthesis, desire in itself is selfish will. It's the opposite of the consciousness. Because the former is a reaction mechanically to life, while the latter is a deliberate, intelligent response. The Sufis corroborate this point, that our common, ordinary, selfish will has to be overcome. Al-Kushani states the following, In scholarly usage, love, mahaba, means will, irrada. But the Sufis do not mean will when they speak of love. For human will does not connect to the eternal, unless one understands it as the will to draw close to him and glorify him. Genuine love is pure. And of course, in our Gnostic studies, we've emphasized many times that pure love is chastity. Chastity is not only the mere restraint of sexual energy, but it refers to the restraint and purity of the mind and heart as well, in which we don't act out of lust, ambition, adultery, pride, selfishness, vanity, extortion, etc. Selfish will is desire, and we have to transmute our desires, our defects, into love, from selfishness to selflessness. Let's continue reading this. Some say that hub, love, is a name for purity of affection because the Bedouins, when speaking of the pure whiteness and regularity of someone's teeth, use the expression habab al-asnan. There are many sexual alchemical symbols in this paragraph. The mouth is always a symbol of secret knowledge because da'at in Hebrew, marifa in Arabic, Gnosis in Greek was once only given by mouth to ear. It was never written down explicitly because the science of alchemy or the perfect matrimony is extremely powerful and transformative. If you want to understand that principle, you can study the lecture given recently by uh, on Chicago Gnosis, Gnostic Mysteries of Chastity. This science or the transformation of the soul is how we purify and utilize our energies in order to expand consciousness. We also find a lot of symbols relating to water here, which is a representation of the sexual energy, which cleanses the mind and flows abundantly within those who know how to circulate it with intelligence, with understanding. The quote continues. Others say that since hubab is a word for the excess water that results from a heavy rain, mahaba came to mean the heart's boiling and stirring with the thirst and excitement of meeting the beloved. Still others say the word is derived from habab alma, the greater part of a body of water, because love is the object of most of the heart's concerns. As we explained in the lecture on renunciation, water is creative, symbolic, literal. Those creative waters are the seminal forces with which we become baptized and initiated. That greater body or ocean of water from which 
or that overpouring of the soul emerges from the absolute, which is like a great ocean. If you awaken your consciousness in meditation and approach the absolute, you perceive the emptiness like a great dark ocean, but there is a profound light hidden there. A dark light. A rippling and a movement, abstract movement and repose, which is the full negation of all manifested things, but is the real state of being. It is the ocean in which we must drown ourselves in love, to be fully immersed and encompassed and inoculated by that. There are many other meanings to these verses. Let's continue. Another derivation draws the word from necessity and fixity. For one, always, for one says, Ahaba al-Bagir, of a camel that kneels and refuses to stand. In just this way, the lover's heart refuses to leave the remembrance of his beloved. Khub is also said to come from Hib, an earring. So another symbol here. We're referring to the type of willpower needed to know divinity. To seek without faltering, without giving up, to advance out of necessity and fixity. The poet says, The snake showed his flicking tongue at the place of his earring, stealthily listening to secrets. So as I said, the mouth is a symbol of alchemical knowledge because we pronounce sacred sounds within a matrimony, within sexual union, to promote the elevation of our creative force. But also, the ear relates to this mystery of alchemy, marifa, divine knowledge, so that we can receive that teaching from mouth to ear, listening in to secrets, which were never written down until as recently as 1950, with the perfect matrimony, with the perfect matrimony by Samal and Vior. So that serpent is a dual symbol. We've given many courses and explanations about this allegory which represents basically this. How either our sexual purity can grant us knowledge of our true nature, or our sexual impurity can eject us from Eden, from happiness, from bliss, from love. What matters is that we know how to use this energy well. Or we condemn ourselves because that force has to act. It can act in a polluted way, in a corrupt, selfish way, or it can be harnessed with intelligence, with wisdom, with patience, with understanding. So to really access the heights of these mysteries, we work again with that energy. With the signs of alchemy especially. Allah Kimia to fuse oneself with the being. We find that this direct knowledge is symbolized even in Muslim architecture, Islamic architecture. You see this image here on the left, which is the Mecca gate from uh, gate number 37 from Al-Majid al-Nabawi, the Prophet's mosque in Medina in Saudi Arabia. This mosque is also known as Al-Haram, or Al-Haram al-Madani and Al-Haram al-Nabawi. 
and it was built by the Prophet. It now constitutes one of the largest mosques in the world. It's the second holiest site in Islam after Majid al-Haram in Mecca. The Arabic inscription shows the name of Prophet Muhammad, followed by his title, the Apostle of God. This door signifies the entrance to genuine wisdom, which we experience through living the alchemical mysteries of the prophets. This is Da'at in Hebrew, or Marifah in Arabic, the doorway to the highest mysteries. It's because that force has the potential to really transform us radically, to open the doorway into those higher states of being. If you're not working with the creative energies, you will not access selfless states. Instead, you will access the opposite, which is harmful. But let's examine what these three gates of this mosque represent. So this mosque has three gates. They represent the three gates of Gnosis, according to the Sufi master Abdullah Ansari of Harat. And it's very beautiful that this mosque contains this tradition and this teaching. We can learn a lot from its symbolism in terms of the kind of work that we need to perform if we really want to obtain the highest degrees of mystical experience. There is the gate of mercy, Bab al-Rahmah, to the south, the gate of Gabriel, Bab Jibril, to the west, and the gate of women, Bab al-Nisa, to the east. Let's actually read these quotes from Abdullah Ansari of Harad for a deeper understanding of this mosque, but also how it applies to our spiritual work. From the field of wisdom, the field of gnosis is generated. Again, remember the word wisdom in Hebrew is chokmah, which is the Kabbalistic symbol for Christ, Christic perception, selflessness, the power of wisdom, the power of divine vision. From this vision, the field of gnosis is generated. God the Most High says, and when they listen to the revelation received by the Apostle, you will see their eyes overflowing with tears, for they recognize the truth. Gnosis is recognition and knowledge, comprising three categories, three ranks in three sequences. The first gate is knowledge of being, its unity and its unique peerlessness. Then comes the second gate, which is the knowledge of God's power, omniscience and beneficence. And then the third gate, which is the knowledge of charitable works, loving and close intimacy. We have to study the tree of life to understand the three gates in relation to three directions, or better said, four directions mapped out by the tree of life. So the tree of life has many angles in which you can approach it. A lot of different mysticisms and teachings relate to four directions north, east, south, and west within scripture. And oftentimes those references are indicating certain aspects of this diagram in order to teach something very intuitive. So while it might seem very complicated and difficult, when you've meditated on what these directions symbolize in relation to the tree of life after study and practice, it'll become much more clear to you. Now specifically, 
the north relates to the right pillar of the tree of life, which is the pillar of mercy, with qualities like chokmah, wisdom, chesed, mercy, and netzach, victory. We have the south relating to the left pillar of the tree of life, which is binah, intelligence, geburah, the divine soul, justice, and hod, the emotions, glory. The middle pillar at the bottom towards Malkut, the physical body, is going towards the west. While the top of the tree of life towards Keter, the higher sphere or point of this glyph, relates to the east. What's significant about these directions is that they relate to qualities of being, tendencies and manners of conscious expression, whether in conditioned states or unconditioned states. Now the east is where the sun rises, especially. We could say Keter is the far east because that's the highest of the top of the tree of life. We could say Tifereth is the middle of this diagram, is governed astrologically by the sun and Venus, the star of love. We can call that the Middle East. And it's interesting because many scriptures take place in the Middle East. It's midway between the top and the bottom of this diagram, but it's also pointed towards the east because astrologically the sun relates to Tifereth, the beauty of the soul, the solar divine creative volition. And the west relates to where the sun sets, where those principles of divinity go down into the infernal worlds, descend into darkness, because the further away from the light we are symbolically, the less understanding and intuition we have. The north relates to spiritual forces because the right pillar, mercy, is divine. Relating to chokmah, wisdom, chesed, the spirit, or mercy, and netzach, victory. The south, the left pillar, its forces descend down towards Malkut and then down into the infernal worlds, the negative states of consciousness. And what's interesting is that as the right pillar, those forces descend into Yesod in order to be harnessed by our spiritual practice. When we abuse of the creative forces of judgment, Geburah, our divine consciousness, it descends down into the hell realms. If you've studied yoga and, and pranayama especially, you know about the two energetic currents on the spine. The tree of life relates to your spinal column as well. The right pillar is precisely mercy. It is the solar creative force, Pingala in Sanskrit. And the left pillar of severity relates to Ida, the feminine creative polarity within our spine. We have a masculine polarity, which is Pingala, a solar force, but also a feminine lunar receptive force known as Ida. And that energetic current in most people is fallen. It doesn't rise up to the brain from the Cossacks, but it said descends down into the hell realms. So this relates to how, according to some mythologies, why the demons have tails, because that serpentine fire of Ida is descending down. It's gone south, so to speak. If you've heard the term, when things go really bad, you've heard the term going south. It originates from this. There's some credence to that saying in a Kabbalistic sense. 
So if we want to understand the tree of life in relation to our spiritual work, we study these four directions. You can also learn more about the four directions in the Kabbalah, especially by studying opera, such as Turandot. We give a course called The Secret Teachings of Opera, which we talk about that specific composition by Puccini, which talks about the four directions in more detail. But we can study the, four, the three directions specifically of the mosque we were talking about. Or uh, Al-Majid al-Nabawi, the Prophet's mosque, in relation to this teaching by Abdurrah Ansari of Harat. So, Gnosis of the first gate is the foundation of Islam. Gnosis of the second gate is the foundation of faith, while Gnosis of the third gate is the foundation of sincerity. So we explained previously that the first gate, which is the knowledge of being, of unity, of unique peerlessness, it is the foundation of Islam, submission to divinity. This is related to the gate of mercy, Bawal Rahman, to the south. If we wish to access the unification of our soul, the unique peerlessness of the being, we have to control the left pillar in us. It is necessary to receive divine mercy and to enact that blessing in us by working to control that fallen current within us, Ida, the lunar creative serpentine fire in our spine. It is the gate of mercy relating to the love pillar because with our fallen and mistaken actions, we create suffering. We create problems for ourselves. And therefore, we have to submit to divinity by controlling the creative energies. There is no escape from this. It is fundamental in a Kabbalistic and an alchemical, in an initiatic and Sufi sense. We submit to divinity because our being is merciful and wants us to change. And therefore, directs his attention towards the south, which is the gate of mercy. Because the love pillar of the tree of life, by learning to work and stabilize our consciousness with those forces, we attain equilibrium. The second gate, which relates to God's power, His omniscience, His beneficence, is the foundation of faith. This is the gate of Gabriel or Jibril, Bab Jibril to the west, relating to Malkut, the physical body. So the former left pillar really is governed by Giburah, severity. Divinity can be very severe with us because of our wrong actions from the past, but we do receive many blessings and intercessions as a result of our sincerity, of submitting ourselves to divine law and not selfish law. And Malkut relates to the West, the foundation of faith, the gate of Jibril. We could say that God's power, His omniscience, His blessings, come through Jibril, which in, er, er, in Hebrew is spelled 
Gabriel or Gabriel, relating to the Nordic runes, Gibur, and the Egyptian Ra, and the Hebrew El. It is the power of sexuality, because the crossing of man and woman within the physical world is what forms the strength or Gibur of God. In Hebrew, we say, Ata Gibur Le'olam Adonai, you are almighty forever, O Lord, is a mantra or sacred prayer within Kabbalah. And when you combine man and woman as a cross, their forces and energies within Malkut, they spin, they rotate like the chakras, they vibrate, they spin, they move, they flow, they form a swastika, which unfortunately is a symbol that was misappropriated by the Germans in World War II, even though that knowledge was uh, applicable to all ancient traditions. The movement of the cross is the force of sexual power, which people like Hitler and his cronies had, you know, obviously abused. But the original meaning has to do with Geburah, the forces of the strength of God, Gibur Ra'el, Gabriel, Geburah in Hebrew, the strength of God, because that sexual strength descends from the left pillar down into Malkut to give us force in order to perform uh, alchemy. It is the gate of Gabriel because in the physical world is where we need to practice. If we are married, if we are in a matrimony. By mastering the cross, we rise out of the west into the east towards heaven, towards the Middle East and even further beyond if we're serious. But that force of the gate of mercy is precisely, or the gate of Gabriel is precisely in the West. Because nobody can enter heaven without working through Gabriel. If you've remembered all the stories of the prophets in the Bible, they are all announced by Gabriel. Likewise, Prophet Muhammad was announced a prophet because of Gabriel, Jibril. He received the first recitation of the Quran upon Jabal Nur, the mountain of light. And that mountain is in Tifereth. It's in the Middle East, where the sun rises, where he would go to meditate and receive divine teachings from Jibril, which are symbols, representations of alchemical knowledge, of his sexual creative work within a matrimony, the perfect matrimony. The third gate, which relates to knowledge of charitable works, Loving and close intimacy is the foundation of sincerity. This is the gate of women, Bab al-Nisa, to the east. Personally, I find this the most compelling. Because as Samal Anvir mentioned, in Practical Astrology, the Manual of Practical Magic, humans came out of paradise through the doors of Eden, and the do- Eden is sex itself. The door of paradise is sex. Whosoever wants to enter Eden must find the door. The woman is the door. She is the gate to Eden for the man. And the man is the gate to Eden for the woman. So this sexual power of Eden, of bliss, is loving and close intimacy with divinity. We really show love for Allah when we learn to be chaste in the sexual act, when we're transmuting diligently. 
specifically because if you look at the Arabic calligraphy in the name of Allah, you have four letters. Alif, Lam, Lam, Ha. The Arabic letter Alif is a straight line. It's phallic. It's the masculine, creative, projective, positive symbol of man. Lam is like a tongue upon which the word is gestated. The verb, the creative expression in which by mantras in the sexual act we transform and transmute that fire. You have the lam or lamed in Hebrew of the man. And then you have lam or lamed of a woman. And then you have ha, which is like a womb. The feminine, creative, negative, receptive sexual organs. That is the power of Allah. Is when husband and wife work together in remembrance of divinity. That is the door to paradise. To the east, we face the east, the rising sun. We pray to Mecca, towards the Kaaba, the sacred stone of Yasad, towards the east, which is rising up above Malkut, the west. And when we raise that sexual force of Yasad up to our heart and even to our mind, or better said, to our mind and then to our heart, we are really sanctifying the gate of women, Baal al Nisa, to the east. We face the rising sun, which reminds us of the Germanic Istre, Eostre, Easter, as we mentioned in a previous lecture. And so why is this the gate of sincerity? Because if we're not really honest with our sexual behaviors, we're not going to be honest with ourselves or divinity. We can't access real profound knowledge without that humble basis, acknowledging where we're at, what our behaviors are, and what we must change. The three ways of Gnosis also relate to the top of the tree of life. And as we mentioned extensively, these are principles, energies, lights, forces, one intelligence, one divine unity that expresses and manifests as three. This is Tawheed, the unity of God. These three expressions of one light can be understood by the Sufis' demarcation between three degrees or levels of school of esoteric, Gnostic, Sufi instruction. We have Sharia, we have Tariqah, and we have Hakikah. Marifa is Da'at, the creative knowledge, which, when this image is placed upon a human being, relates to the throat. Again, the mouth, the word, the verb, the secret knowledge that was only given through oral transmission to candidates who had proven their discipleship, their worth. We have these three pillars, we could say, relate to what Al-Hujari mentions in Revelation of the Mystery. That the uh, essence of divinity is known as Keter in Hebrew, the crown. 
Chokmah, wisdom, are the attributes of divinity, the divine qualities of the being. And divinity's acts are binah, intelligence. Here is what this Persian Sufi master had to say about this topic. The knowledge of the truth, hakikat, has three pillars. Knowledge of the essence and unity of God. Knowledge of the attributes of God. Knowledge of the actions and wisdom of God. The knowledge of the law, shariat, also has three pillars. The Quran, the Sunnah, and the consensus of the Muslim community. Knowledge of the divine essence involves recognition on the part of one who is reasonable and has reached puberty, that God exists externally by his essence, that he is infinite and not bounded by space, that his essence is not the cause of evil, that none of his creatures is like unto him, that he is neither wife nor child, and that he is the creator and sustainer of all that your imagination and intellect can conceive. Who are those capable of knowing the unity, the essence of divinity, Keter? It is those who have reached puberty, whereby the sexual potential is developed and mature. This indicates how individuals whose sexual energy is activated can begin working with transmutation so that such energy provides a basis for comprehension. Divinity is not localized within one particular space, but is space itself, the absolute abstract space wherein any universe is gestated. In this way, the Sufis agree how divinity does not have wife nor child, which is a response to the degeneration of the Christian trinity, the Father, Divine Mother Mary, and Christ Child, were taken to represent literal anthropomorphized figures, which is missing the point regarding the symbology of scriptures. Biblical characters, while having literally lived in the past, more importantly represent principles that apply to our own inner work. As for our imagination and intellect, only those who possess the seed, the sexual essence or synthesis, can awaken genuine intelligence and perception. This is because, as we explained previously, the Quran refers to initiates as possessors of seeds, or kernels, ulul al-bab, which is often translated as possessors of intellect. In Sanskrit, intellect is buddhi, or in Hebrew, geburah, the Arabic deen. Initiates possess the secret of sexual knowledge, the sexual seed, the kernel of life, and are therefore known as intuitive Kabbalists, whereas the intellectuals, the intellectual Kabbalists, only possess the shells, the appearance of diverse doctrines. Al-Hujri continues, Knowledge of divine attributes requires you to know that God has attributes existing in himself, which are not he nor a part of him, but exist in him and subsist by him. Knowledge, power, life, will, hearing, sight, speech, etc. Salman Vior explained that the best atoms belong to Chokmah as the attributes of a universal consciousness. We can access such infinite states in deep meditation and learn to subsist within them through familiarity and training. While they are not he nor a part of him, such divine qualities or states of being exist within his fundamental nature, which can be realized in us when we are properly prepared. Al-Hujari continues, 
Knowledge of the divine actions is your knowledge that God is the creator of mankind and of all their actions, that he brought the non-existent universe into being, that he predestines good and evil and creates all that is beneficial and injurious. Again, Bina is the creator, the empowerment of all actions, especially our sexual behaviors. If we do not awaken consciousness through the positive use of the sexual force, it becomes channeled through ego, animal desire. However, Bina, divine action, allows for the emergence of uncreated things, the materialization and manifestation of the abstract within the concrete. He provides both good and evil because Bina is beyond good and evil. Dat or Marifa, the tree of knowledge beneath the logoic triangle on the tree of life. Here we're using Kabbalistic explanations for Sufi doctrine in order to clarify. Sharia, the law, divine instruction, relates to how we act, how we receive the teaching, how we apply it with intelligence, with understanding, so that divinity can be cultivated within a space in our hearts, in our consciousness, so that we can walk the path of wisdom, tariqah, or chokmah, which is wisdom. In this way, we begin to experience and understand from a direct experience what the attributes of divinity are. Compassion, altruism, philanthropy, chastity, patience, humility, faith, wisdom, diligence, patience, uh, Perseverance, diligence, as I said. And then we have Hakikah, the truth, relating to the essence of divinity, the supreme, act, the supreme qualities of the being. Al-Haq, the truth. So, we accomplish that by working with Da'at in Hebrew, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which allows us to become pure, as the Quran teaches and emphasizes many times. Let's relate some more quotes from Abdullah Ansari of Harat, which break down the structure for interpreting conscious experiences, mystical instruction, but also our direct experiences. The way that leads one through the first gate is envisioning the Creator's providence and the opening and closing of human handiwork. So what is the creator, as I said? It is Al-Khaliq, which relates to Bina, the intelligence of how divinity creates through our sexual union with our partner, within alchemy. It is the opening and closing of human handiwork. This relates to knowledge of being, of unity, of peerlessness. There are a lot of references in the Quran which refer to the handiwork of humanity that are symbols of divine expression. For example, the Quran mentions how God made the ships of the sea and iron for weaponry as a, and, or better said, a vine, vineyards and date palms which are nourished by rain as signs and symbols for those who have understanding, intelligence, These are all representations and symbols of how divinity creates in us, creates the soul 
through the iron of weaponry, which is willpower, and the ships of the sea. And that the sea, as I said, is a sexual symbol. And we cross the sea of temptation through the ark, the great ark, so that we are not drowned in the flood of our own destructive passions. We perceive divinity's influence in our lives through our handiwork, our sexual path, our discipline, which has to be handled with intelligence, with Bina. We can experience Bina in the sense, at our level, as we're working with transmutation exercises. That's the power and energy that grants us understanding for interpreting what the diverse religious scriptures and teachings have to say in their synthesis, in their fundamental root. It also is the, the way and the gate that leads us towards experiencing who the Creator is within us. Let's continue reading. The way that leads to the second gate is the contemplator's own interior recognition of the wisdom, chokmah, of divine providence within himself. So these are inner states, inner qualities of being. Divine providence is the manifestation and expression of compassion, which is chokmah, wisdom, which we recognize in ourselves as we learn contemplation, selflessness. If you meditate deeply and penetrate within this sephira, as Salman Vyar and others have mentioned, we can experience being multiple people, multiple individuals, experiencing a state of omniscience in which you are witnessing yourself. For example, there was one Gnostic instructor who mentioned that he perceived in this sephira Krishnamurti teaching a group of students. And he saw himself with a lot of love, providing beneficial knowledge for humanity. And then he returned to his body and he was very alarmed, thinking, wondering, if he was Krishnamurti, but the truth is that he had penetrated into the Sephira Chokmah, which is wisdom, omniscience, divine consciousness. Let's continue. The way that leads to the third gate is the perception of God's mercy, which is really Kater, whom Saman referred to as the mercy of mercies, which recognizes the worth of praiseworthy works and overlooks sins. This final and last gate is the field of the Gnostics. It is the alchemy of lovers and the way of the elect. It is the way that beautifies the heart, increases one's joy, and expands the feeling of love. This also relates to knowledge of charitable works, loving in close intimacy, which is increased as we are intimate with our partner, with divine love, with chaste love, with pure love. It beautifies the heart. It is the alchemy of lovers. It is the field of the Gnostics. So in this state, we can really receive divine aid. But what is subsistence in divinity? So we talked briefly about 
how some of these states can be experienced in meditation, can be mapped by this diagram, can relate to scriptures and teachings and systems of thought. But it'd be good to understand what it means to subsist within divinity, which is the Arabic baka. So as we mentioned, we can have uh, fleeting experiences relating to the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life, but knowing how to sustain them requires training, to learn how to subsist and to be in those states. So what is subsistence specifically? To define it for you, it is the state or fact of subsisting, the state or fact of existing, the providing of sustenance or support, the means of supporting life, such as a living or a livelihood. It is the source from which food and other items necessary to exist are obtained. For the meditator, divinity is our livelihood. It is our nourishment. It is our sustenance, our substance. In philosophy, subsistence relates to existence, especially of an independent entity. It is the quality of having timeless or abstract existence, which again relates to the top trinity of the tree of life. It is abstract for us. These are very difficult to ascertain as concepts, but can be intuitive and known through experience. It is a mode of existence by which a substance is individualized. This is the meaning of subsistence. Now, we want to make our consciousness an individuality, as I said. Right now, we are a multiplicity. But by integrating the consciousness from its multiple defects and eliminating those faults, we individualize ourselves, we integrate the soul so that it can reflect the perfect unity within. There is no other way to really return to divinity but to eliminate all that is false. This is the radical axis upon which Gnostic and Sufi teachings are based in their esoteric origin. This is why we speak a lot about the annihilation of the ego, which of course is a very difficult topic for people because we're all attached to ourselves. It's, it's a fundamental quality of our experience that we don't like to perceive our faults, to eliminate and change them. But this is the basis of religion. The Sufis refer to annihilation as fana, and that without it we cannot be within God. From the field of annihilation, the field of subsistence in God comes. God the Most High says, God is the best, the most long-lasting and subsisting. From Surah 20, verse 73. God is the Most High, and that is all. Over time, attachments will end. Means will vanish. Customs will be voided. Limits will be broken. Understandings will be eliminated. History will fade away. Illusions are transient. Expressions are negated. Information will be wiped out. But God eternally exists and he exists in his ultimate unity. So these are reasons why we should really work seriously in ourselves to understand our own faults. Death will arrive. Our means of subsisting in life will vanish. The limits of our perception will be broken as we enter the internal worlds after death and are forced to confront our past. Understandings will be eliminated. What we thought was factual 
but was illusory, will have to be addressed. As mentioned in the Quran, that the unbelievers will be given their account within a book. It's a symbol of retrospecting one's life after having deceased. History will fade away. Knowledge of the world will be useless. Illusions are transient. Information in our head and our intellect will be wiped out because we don't remember how we came into this world or where we're going or even where we're at now. And so while all these things are transient, God eternally exists and he exists in his ultimate unity. So unification is the goal. Purification of the consciousness is what's our objective. I like to relate a brief excerpt from the Quran, which teaches something very beautiful and profound about our relationship with divinity. Before the soul had emanated from the absolute into the manifested universe, in order to begin a specific spiritual work, the Sufis referred to this conversation between the soul and divinity as a type of profound revelatory moment that had to be reinitiated again by the soul that is learning to return to divinity. We emanated from the universe, or better say, we emanated from the absolute into the universe, and now must return up the tree of life with knowledge, with wisdom. The moment of communication with divinity, we could say, the moment we left the absolute, is known by the Sufis as the day of Alast. It is the covenant of divinity with the soul. When we talk about the Absolute, we pay close attention especially towards the Ain Sof, which Samal Enviar clarified in his book on Tarot and Kabbalah is our own particular synthesis. It is an atomic, super-divine force, our being, which is like a point of light within the abstract Absolute space from which we emanated, which does not have knowledge yet of its full divine happiness and potential. Therefore, it sends out its consciousness down into the tree of life in order to enter Malkut and hopefully to return inward and upward back towards the source. This is the meaning of the verse from the Hadith Qudzi. Allah says, I was a hidden treasure and I wished to be known. So I created a creation, mankind and the tree of life, that made myself known to them and they recognized me. So divinity is that beautiful treasure we seek to uncover within our meditations. To be no, to know divinity and to recognize divine intelligence and expression within our dreams and then within our meditations. The following verses from the Quran relate and imply basically how the power to witness divinity is born from our seed our creative sexual matter. We'll relate this to you and explain it. And when thy Lord took from the children of Adam from their loins, their progeny, and made them bear witness concerning themselves, am I not your Lord? They said, yea, we bear witness. Lest you should say on the day of resurrection, truly of this we were heedless. Or lest you should say, it is only that our fathers ascribed partners unto God beforehand, and we were their progeny after them. 
will thou destroy us for that which the falsifiers have done? Thus do we expound the signs that happily they may return. Salman Vera mentions how we return to the Absolute by working with alchemy, with a marriage, within Malkut, and then rising up the Sephiroth to the heavens, back towards our Ain Sof. So it's really interesting that this verse is found within Al-Araf, the heights, within the Quran, because we have to return to the heights of this diagram, superior states. We bear witness through the sexual seed. This is the fundamental teaching that Salman Vyar gave in his books. It is the sexual seed that grants the energy and the capacity, the knowledge, the wisdom, by which to access reality within its multidimensional grandeur and splendor. It's interesting that in the Quran, the word progeny translates from duriyat, which derives from a root that literally denotes small particles, atoms, seeds, which are scattered. This is very interesting. This word also means progeny or offspring and many other verses from the Quran. So these atoms belong to Yasad specifically, but all the different Sephiroth, the tree of life, contain particles of our sexual energy and seed. Those forces and potentialities that allow us or can grant us the capacity to return to divinity. So in the path and process by which we return to the Absolute, we create the soul, we create vehicles relating to each of these lower Sephiroth so that we can inhabit and experience and know and understand the forces of those levels of nature, becoming more rarefied and beautified as we ascend. And in the end of the work, what's really interesting is that after having perfected ourselves within the ten Sephiroth, we can enter and emerge and return to the Ain Sof. But at this point, as Salman Vyar mentions in Terun Kabbalah, we enter the Ain Sof as our unity, that superatomic point or star, that synthesis of our being, the real being within. And we abandon all vehicles below. They dissolve. And what is extracted as a type of synthesis or essence of those lower Sephiroth, the ten Sephiroth, is a seed, is a germ. And those ten Sephiroth are reduced to a single point, into a single atom for each Sephiroth individually. So you have ten, and they enter the Absolute, so that when the soul is united with that perfect plenitude of divinity... Whenever the master that is self-realized wants to enter the universe can put those germs or seeds, that progeny into activity, to use Quranic language, in order to manifest anywhere at will. Such a monad or unity, such an Ain Sof, is self-realized, it is perfected. Or better said, has knowledge of its own perfection. And therefore, those seeds have to be gathered, they're scattered in us. This is the meaning of to bear witness from their loins, their progeny. Better said, the Lord took from the children of Adam, from their loins, their progeny. 
they're seeds, those atomic spiritual essences that relate to the tree of life, and made them bear witness concerning themselves. Because you bear witness of reality through divinity, through working with those forces and mastering them. So that in the end, we dissolve in the form of annihilation in order to subsist within God, within the Ain Sof Paranishpana, an atomic super divine star of our being that shines with great glory and splendor in the absolute abstract space. This is Allah, the root of all being. So in relation to the tree of life, if you've studied the books of Salman Vior, he mentions about creating solar bodies. We create vehicles to the sexual seed, which are solar material vehicles or means of expressing the perfect light of divinity within the Sephiroth themselves. These solar bodies are known as the wedding garment of the soul, known in Christianity. You also have, in Arabic, libas al-taqwa, the garments of reverence within the Quran. These are the vehicles of the soul, the pure, energetic, divine, spiritual vehicles that we can inhabit within the world of dreams, within the internal dimension, so that we can navigate those spheres consciously, with intentionality, with lucidity with consistency, with continuity. But these are vehicles that are created within a marriage. And you can study the perfect matrimony for more elaboration on those points. But here we're just synthesizing how when you work with the sexual seed, you're using the energy that can grant you witnessing of the truth, as stated in the Quran, so that we can return to our divine origin. Now, what's interesting about the solar bodies or these vehicles of the soul and spirit within Islam is mentioned within, again, the surah, Al-Araf, the heights, verse 26. All children of Adam, we have bestowed upon you raiment to conceal your private parts and as adornment. But the raiment of reverence, that is best. Libas al-Taqwa. That is from the signs of Allah that perhaps they will remember. The Arabic words for raiment of reverence, as I said, are libas al-Taqwa, which can be translated as armor due to the fact that reverence, which is the Arabic taqwa, comes from the word ataka, which means to shield oneself. And it's a reference to the many times in the Quran of how one has to defend oneself against the punishment of hellfire, against our animal passions. Likewise, this raiment of chastity guards one's private parts, which we utilize the creative potential for divine will. Study the perfect matrimony for an understanding of alchemy, mystery of the golden blossom, and as well as, or mystery of the golden flower, the new title, and also Teron Kabbalah by Samuel and Vior explains these dynamics very deeply. Here we're just relating the synthesis in relation to the Quran. So in the end, after you have extracted all the seed essences of all the different Sephiroth within you, you dissolve within the absolute and achieve true, genuine liberation and subsistence. We end with, uh, or this slide with Abdullah Ansari of Harat's statements. So we talked about 
different sephiroth, the ten spheres, which can also be ten stations, which also can be signified by 100 stations, or levels and degrees of initiation, relating to the tree of life. Each sephiroth is a station in itself. All these 100 stations are dissolved in the field of love, machabat. The field of friendship is the field of love. God the Most High describes how He will produce a people whom He loves and whom love Him. Surah 5 verse 54 And say, If you love God, follow me. Surah 3 verse 31 But friendship has three stations. It begins with truthfulness, its middle is drunkenness, and its end is non-existence. Praise be to God, the beginning, al-awal, and the end, al-akkar. The Ain Sof, our true divine being, is real love. Limitless being, divine expression and freedom. We have uh, some poetry from Rumi I'd like to relate to you in terms of these concepts. Now, while we've given many explanations of a Kabbalistic and abstract type, which can be very challenging and difficult, these principles become understood through deep meditation and a lot of experience. So be patient. Rumi, the great Sufi poet, mentioned some of the principles relating to love and how really knowing this from factual experience is a matter of conscious awakening and has nothing to do with just mere study of the intellect. So I invite you not merely just to receive this knowledge in the intellect, but to really grapple with it in your heart. Really take a lot of time to meditate on its contents because this is the result of many years of study and also experience and work in relation to this topic. Rumi says it best. No matter what I say to explain and elucidate love, shame overcomes me when I come to love itself. Love cannot be contained within our speaking or listening. Love is an ocean whose depths cannot be plumbed. Would you try to count the drops of the sea? Before that ocean, the seven seas are nothing. Love cannot be found in erudition and science, books and pages. Whatever is discussed by people, that is not the way of lovers. Whether you have said or heard is the shell. The kernel of love is a mystery that cannot be divulged. Enough. How long will you cling to these words of the tongue? Love has many expositions beyond speech. Silence. Silence. For the illusions of love are reversed. The meanings become hidden from much speaking. Someone asked, what is love? I replied, ask not about these meanings. When you become like me, then you will know. When he calls you, you will recite its tale. O you who have listened to the talk of love, behold love. What are words in the ears compared to vision in the eyes? What is love? Perfect thirst. So let me explain the water of life. That water of life is our sexual creative force. And therefore, it is the seed, the kernel of love that opens the mysteries that cannot be divulged by mere speech because its expositions are beyond the written word, the spoken word. And oftentimes those meanings become obscured from too much intellectualization. So one other thing to remember is that we want to bear in mind that our actions are really the best predicator of spiritual life 
our words can be very hypnotizing, our concepts, such as I hope, I promise, I will do this, I believe in this, I wish. I have faith in these teachings or in these concepts, but without action, they're really quite useless. We can live our whole life ascribing partners unto God, unto divinity, hoping and wishing that one day we'll be spiritual. But the reality is that we fulfill these laws in us when we enact selfless, compassionate action. It is in this way that we really fulfill Sharia in Arabic, divine law, the divine commandments. And that way we walk the path, tariqah, which is meditation. Entering deeper states of tranquility and insight and learning to focus and concentrate upon one goal. And in this meditation for this lecture specifically is we learn to enter inside the being, to penetrate the world of the being. We can have many words for these concepts, but what's important is the reality, the experience. This is only accomplished through actions, through daily consistent discipline, by working with the three factors of the revolution of the consciousness as we've explained before. So, for this final lecture in this course, there's a simple practice you can use in order to really experience what these principles are about. Adopt the meditation posture and completely relax. Withdraw from the senses and enter a state of equanimity and internal silence. Pray to your being to grant you illumination, wisdom, and inner experience. While falling asleep, maintain vigilance, murakaba, and attentiveness, concentrating upon the presence of your innermost to grant you the comprehension you seek. You can utilize one of the following two powerful mantras. There is the mantra from the Pranya Paramita Sutra, which is Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasamgate, Bodhiswaha. There's a link at the end of this slide for the mantra that you could pronounce from Glorian Publishing. And lastly, there's a mantra which in Arabic is known as Hu, H U, which is pronounced like an elongated breath. What's interesting is that Samal and Vior related to the same mantra, but in the Chinese way, Chinese Chan Buddhist way in many of his books, such as, I believe, the Gnostic Magic of the Runes, or the Magic of the Runes, specifically. He says the mantra, Wu, which is pronounced like a breath, the same sound, prolonged, like a hurricane, and then, Wu, specifically. So the same mantra, it's the same teaching. The Sufis pronounce Allahu repeatedly, prolonging its vowels and sounds, its syllables, even going inside mentally, pronouncing it internally, until falling asleep and entering through astral projections into the higher dimensions. So as to experience these principles for oneself. So at this point in time, I like to open up the floor to questions. We have a question. Are the mantras pronounced mentally? Do you do the microcosmic star before as well? You can pronounce them physically, and it's good to also perform the microcosmic star before you physically sit to practice. 
and to uh, get yourself in the right state of mind, to enter a state of serenity. You can pronounce the mantras physically, uh, verbally. Focus on the sounds. Let yourself recite these sounds silently, first out loud, verbally, then dropping your volume, and then doing it silently in the mind until you fall asleep consciously, letting that mantra totally engage you. So the important thing is that we immerse ourselves within the mantra in its vibration internally. It's the most powerful, most effective. In that way, like with any other mantra from astral projection, you learn to separate from the physical body so that you can access those internal worlds specifically in a deep, profound, and penetrating way. We have a question. How do Christian saints attain sainthood since they are mostly celibate? So, as with any saints within the diverse religious traditions, they obtained sainthood through a marriage. Now, of course, that knowledge was not given publicly. It had to be kept in secret because it's controversial even now today with the internet and openly teaching about these things. It's, a, it's even difficult enough for people now to appreciate and to understand and to even want to practice and experiment with. Now, those saints from different traditions, whether they be from the Christian faith or from the Muslim and Sufi traditions, they all achieved initiation by working with the seed. Some masters had already worked with transmutation and alchemy in previous lives, like the present Dalai Lama. He worked with alchemy, tantrism, in his past existences, had reached sainthood, which we can say initiatically relates to the fifth initiation of major mysteries, the fifth initiation of fire, or the peak of sainthood. Now, perfection in prophecy and mastery is a very deep topic, which one acquires by entering the Venusic initiations, as explained in the courses of Kabbalah, and then Tarot and Kabbalah, and also in The Three Mountains by Samal and Vior. We also gave an article called, uh, it's one of our articles on initiation on our website, Who is a Master? Where we talked about specifically the different degrees within Sufi mysticism about sainthood and mastery, prophethood. Saints, we could say, have acquired the fifth initiation of fire, but they do so through alchemy. Now, in the case of the Dalai Lama, he already had reached the fifth initiation of fire and was working as a single person in his existence. So, in order to reach mastery, one has to be married. But it doesn't mean that those saints had done it in that current lifetime in which they became canonized or recognized for their sainthood. We have a question. What is the best way to die in your desire? I don't know if I've comprehended it or not. Is my yearning enough for the Divine Mother to decapitate it? Do I have to break it down into my different desires? The best way to die to desire is to comprehend. Our comprehension unfolds in layers, in levels. What we understand today will go deeper in tomorrow. Of course, this is a moment-to-moment -moment work in which we examine our present state 
If you really want to eliminate egos, we have to go deep inside. Comprehend the root. If you eliminate the branches, the branches can grow back if we're not careful. But if you go for the roots, you can extract the tree of zakum, so to speak. The inverted tree of klipot, the hell realms. Now, if you're not sure that you've comprehended it or not, it means that you haven't comprehended it. When you comprehend it deeply, you understand where the ego originated, how it sustains, how it feeds, how it works, what its food is, what its triggers are, what egos it relates to. Now, if you comprehend a little bit, it's good to ask for elimination, especially to pray for our Divine Mother to give us strength to resist it, to comprehend it, to not feed it and give it what it wants. But if you really want lasting, deep change, we have to go into the profundities. And that often means that we face the very thing we don't want to face. And this can be very painful and difficult, very challenging. So it can also help you to break down certain events in your life, visualizing it in retrospection meditation, to perceive what moments in the day you acted or mistakenly behaved, whether physically or even verbally or just mentally. Whatever you comprehend, you can pray for annihilation, but do understand that to be radically freed and liberated from those deep-seated tendencies, our comprehension has to be very robust. And your Divine Mother will give you the experiences and the challenges for that ego to come up. If you don't comprehend it, you're going to face the same situations again. Those ordeals will repeat. It's important to repeat them because if we don't learn our lesson, then we got to go through it again. The important thing is not to exacerbate the problem or the karma that is repeating itself in that situation. But take advantage of it. Learn how to suffer consciously. To be patient. To allow ourselves space and time to grow. And not to be shaking the fruit from the tree of life out of ambition. But to let it blossom and let the fruit ripen on its own. So that it falls in your hand when the moment comes. That's what comprehension is like. When it's really deep. When you're meditating and you're not expecting any answer. When you just silence yourself and don't think. Not as a blank foggy, amorphous state, but as a pristine, sharp, lucid clarity in which suddenly the understanding just emerges. It can appear in the form of an experience, an intuition, a hunch, a vision. And that understanding is enough when it's really profound and when you finally have intuited and discerned what is going on in that situation. You can cut at the root. Because remember that the term samsara in Sanskrit means cycling. It is repetition and repeated egotistical psychological patterns that we, we go through again and again. And when you really understand the root of it, you cut through it. That's nirvana. It is cessation. It is peace. So study yourself. Be patient. Don't rush. Take a lot of time to understand one ego at a time. Analyze it profoundly. And when you least expect it, the understandings will emerge on their own. We have a question. How can we gauge our current progress in Gnosis? 
Some people like to think it's mystical experiences, but that's not, that's not a guarantee of real development and change. Instead, you know that you're really changing and progressing when you no longer repeat the same mistakes. For example, perhaps at work you have a, colleagues that are very negative, they gossip a lot, and they perhaps maybe even speak badly about you. And you might overhear this and suddenly feel rage and anger, despair, different egos, fear that emerge in the moment. You find that you're progressing when those situations repeat as a, as a form of testing of you and you don't psychologically react at all. You don't repeat the same reactions to the situation. You're not selfish there. There's no self present in those moments. You can be criticized and condemned by the same people, whereas before you felt great aversion and suffering, you don't feel it anymore because you've understood what faults in you kept producing that pain. So yes, you can have internal experiences in the superior worlds, the astral dimension, where your divinity will show you the love of your work. To see yourself in a coffin, especially, Going into a fire, like in the astral plane, is a symbol of really eliminating certain egos. Being dead psychologically. So those experiences can appear and emerge and give us some gauge and guidance, which is really beautiful. But also you find that you're progressing as you're not repeating the same mechanical behaviors. You're more conscious. You're not reacting with the same egos. In fact, you're responding with patience and love in the example that I provided. So it's how we respond to life and not react. That's a strong measurement of what we're doing. We have a question. What is the purpose of the circle movement we see in the Sufi dances? Or what is its significance in relation to meditation? We have a very similar practice within Gnosis. We call it the sacred rites of rejuvenation. In which we spin from left to right in order to activate certain latent psychological and energetic centers known as chakras. Now, the Sufis don't refer to those uh, in the Hindu sense. But they refer to it as Lataif. Lataifa Sita, which are Relating to the certain organs of perception within Sufi psychology, they are energetic centers that allow us for deeply experiencing our internal worlds. And part of the spinning process is to activate those centers, those forces, in a significant and dynamic way. So we can perform those dances, which are very sacred and beautiful, they represent and replicate the movement of the planets in the spheres around the sun as a form of divine love, divine conscious realization. Now, when we perform the sacred rites for rejuvenation, we also spin left to right clockwise as if the same direction as we're turning right on a steering wheel in front of us in order to perform certain spiritual works. There's a different things we can approach this practice with, such as 
comprehending egos, activating chakras, healing sick organs, praying for divine assistance. And the Sufi dances parallel this as well. They're deeply related, deeply integrated. Any other questions? So I thank you all for coming. Thank you for attending this course. I hope you enjoy and you study it deeply and apply it to your life. So we wish you many blessings. Inferential peace, or as we say in Sufism, Assalamu Alaikum. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.